Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. Greetings and welcome, everybody. It is Friday, June 25th, 2021. It was on this day in 1876 that General George Custer engaged the Sioux in the Battle of Little Bighorn, which hopefully we all know ended disastrously for the United States troops and ultimately the death of General Custer. It was also on this day in 1950 that North Korea invaded South Korea, beginning the Korean War. But I think there's a different type of battle, really a moral battle, on a number of fronts in this country, not the least of which is the continued effect of Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione's pastoral letter of about a month and a half ago that talked about the importance of receiving the Eucharist, what that means to people of faith, and the ramifications for Catholics, especially Catholics in public life, if they do not adhere to Catholic teaching, and especially the teaching on the sanctity of human life, and are very open and public on their opposition or contradiction of that teaching. Just last week, a week ago today, on June 18th, 2021, a number of Democrat members of the House of Representatives in the United States Congress wrote a letter to the U.S. bishops who have now decided, by a vote of 73%, to put together a statement regarding this issue of abortion and Catholics in public life and the receiving of the Eucharist, to pen a letter and make a statement regarding that. And these members of Congress have written a letter asking that the U.S. bishops do not do that. And that letter was released last Friday. And looking over the letter, one has to uh, consider just the approach that these politicians are taking, not only to Catholic faith, but to their role as Catholics in the profession and the roles of leadership that they have. On the one hand, I just have to, to look at highlights of this letter. But before I do that, the first thing I want to point out is that in a certain point in this letter, they talk about the separation of church and state. And how do we understand the separation of church and state in this country? Well, most people nowadays consider that to be an exclusion of the church in anything political. In other words, politics is this anti-religious biodome in which nothing religious must penetrate. And because of that, many have the understanding, if not just the attitude, that if any issue becomes a political issue, it's off limits for matters of faith. And many would consider abortion, because it is a political issue, to be off limits for people of religious faith or the teaching authority of the church. But I always like to compare the conflict right now over abortion with the conflict from over 150 years ago, was resolved 150 years ago, the conflict of slavery in this country, and a reminder that the abolitionist movement was at its heart a Christian movement. And there were politicians at that time that were chiding the abolitionist movement as an extremist Christian movement that were trying to enforce their Christian values on a secular country in violation of separation of church and state. And yet, despite the attitudes of the time that abolition was a Christian movement, it still is now the law of the land and 
we're a country that can no longer fathom that slavery ever existed in this country. It's something that we are reminded of as a mark of shame, but we forget that it was Christianity that led to abolition in this country, and abolition was at heart a Christian movement. Even though there were many pro-slave people of the South who quoted religion, quoted the Bible in their argument that God wanted slavery, or that it was God's will that certain groups of people be enslaved, the abolitionist movement was, at its heart, Christian, recognizing that all human beings are of equal dignity before God, regardless of race. And so the separation of church and state is something that people love to invoke, and this letter does make reference to the separation of church and state. But I would like to quote a document of Thomas Jefferson in which he uses the phrase separation of church and state in a particular context and from a particular angle in this country. In looking over that context, we might come to realize that the separation of church and state in this country is not understood the way most people would understand it. In other words, the way most people who understand separation of church and state miss the mark. Let's just get into the letter to the Danbury Baptist Church by Thomas Jefferson, dated January 1st, 1802. He writes, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legislative powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should, and he quotes the First Amendment, their legislature should, quote, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, unquote, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation and in behalf of the rights of conscience, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore to man all his natural rights, convinced he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. Now, how does he relate the separation of church and state? He relates it in direct reference to keeping the government out of matters of conscience, keeping the government out of matters pertaining to someone's relationship with God. Here again, quote, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legislative powers of government reach actions only and not opinions. The role of the government is not to dictate your conscience or to dictate your faith or dictate your morals. In other words, the separation of church and state is not a protection of the state from the church. It is a protection of the church from the state. Government must stay out of matters of religion. And in this letter, the members of Congress, the Democrat members of Congress who are Catholic, seek to dictate to the church its terms for living and teaching and advocating Catholic moral policy in our society. And if faith is to have no say in the progress of society, then our society would descend into anarchy. But it is not the church that has to stay out of politics. Not that Thomas Jefferson wanted a state religion. He didn't, nor do I, as an American and as a Catholic. But the leadership in Congress and the other branches of government should be informed and nourished by their faith 
so that they have a moral compass from which they provide their leadership. In other words, one can't say they are of a particular faith and then not be of that faith in their role as elected officials of the United States, whether it be Congress or the executive branch. But faith is going to come into a play with the leaders who are going to be coming from different faiths. But the only thing the government cannot do is provide for a state religion. It can make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Because the expectation is people of faith will allow that faith to influence how they govern. They just cannot govern in a direction that establishes a formal religion for the state. In other words, Christians are expected to govern like Christians. That was the understanding and that was the desire of the founding fathers. So when we quote separation of church and state, it does not mean that Christian politicians cease to be Christians when they become politicians. Catholic politicians, Jewish politicians, there is where faith and the moral compass that faith provides has that influence that the founding fathers wanted to keep our country on a moral grounding and keep the political leadership in a moral grounding. However, the politics cannot impose on religion, which is what these politicians are seeking to do. So first of all, their reference to the separation of church and state about halfway through the letter When they say, we believe the separation of church and state allows for our faith to inform our public duties and best serve our constituencies, that is correct. But they cannot sacrifice those principles as politicians. So what does this letter say? First of all, it says, as Catholic Democrats in Congress, they don't say Congress people or members of Congress. They call themselves Catholic Democrats in Congress. They state that the living Catholic tradition expresses a consistent moral framework for life. But then it goes on to say that it highlights the need to provide a collective safety net to those individuals in society who are the most vulnerable. Collective safety net. So immediately they're putting this in political terms. The church is not a social movement. Christianity is not a social movement. It is a religious faith that informs social movements. But it's not in and of itself a social movement. You can't be a Catholic activist unless you are first a Catholic. Then you are the activist from the standpoint of being Catholic. But if you seek to look at your Catholicism as based solely on social activism, then you run the risk of the activism taking precedence in compromising the precepts of your Catholic faith. They go on, as legislators, we work every day to advance respect for life and the dignity of every human being. Really? Certainly not the dignity of the unborn. And they say, we believe that government has a moral purpose. Well, what morality are they talking about? If government has morality and faith has morality, then which morality takes precedence? If we look at the separation of church and state, then the government morality should not be adhered to at all. Because if the government morality thinks it's superior, then religious morality has to adhere to government morality. But the separation of church and state means government, the state, stays out of church affairs, which includes the moral foundations of a religious faith. In their case, their own Catholic faith, as they claim to profess as Catholic legislators. What if that moral purpose is at odds with the Christian moral purpose of the church? They, as politicians, are now seeking to dictate to the church how the church 
should conduct its moral purpose. But if we look at the separation of church and state, if any moral purpose is superior over another, then the separation of church and state as a protection of the church from the state means that the church's moral purpose always supersedes the state's moral purpose. They're committed, they say in the letter. We are committed to making real the basic principles that are at the heart of Catholic social teaching, helping the poor, disadvantaged, and the oppressed, protecting the least among us. Now, the least among us, but obviously not the unborn. Certainly the unborn are the least among us, the most vulnerable among us. They state that the commitment of their faith is fulfilled in different ways by legislatures, but includes reducing the rising rates of poverty, particularly child poverty. Well, how are they reducing child poverty? By reducing the number of children? If you're reducing the number of children, you are reducing the rate of child poverty. How many millions have been killed since Roe versus Wade alone? But you don't reduce child poverty by reducing the number of children. They say they are recognizing the dignity of all human beings, but certainly not the dignity of the unborn human beings. In fact, many of them will avoid the question if asked directly, do you believe the unborn human fetus is in fact human? They're committed, they say, to repairing the long-standing racial and gender inequalities in our society. And yet, statistics have repeatedly demonstrated that the vast majority of victims of abortion are from the African population. The letter goes on. Each of us is committed to reducing the number of unintended pregnancies. They don't say reducing the number of abortions. They say reducing the number of unintended pregnancies. How? Through abortion. They aren't looking at the issue of abortion. They're looking at unwanted pregnancies. But abortion is the very issue that the bishops are addressing and the very issue that Archbishop Cordiglione of San Francisco addressed. Again, skirting the issue that is bringing put forth by the bishops. Now, I'm paraphrasing here. I'm not reading through the whole letter, just different highlights that I at least take issue with. The beginning of the fourth paragraph, they say, In all these issues, we seek the church's guidance and assistance, but believe also in the primacy of conscience. Now, again, that too is a misunderstanding. A very popular misunderstanding is the primacy of conscience. Conscience does not mean, I think it's okay, therefore it is. Conscience is something that has to be informed. It's how we were raised. It's the values in which we were raised. It's informed by the faith that we profess. You cannot say I am a Catholic and not have a Catholic conscience or a conscience formed by the Catholic faith and Catholic moral teaching and Catholic social teaching. And part of the teaching of the Catholic Church that is, yes, there are certain issues that are subject to an individual's conscience, but abortion is not one of them. Abortion is not an issue that is subject to conscience because of the absolute evil of the action. You cannot, in any kind of conscience, whether in action or in condoning the action, take the life of an innocent human being. So again, they seek to skirt the issue by saying, oh yeah, there's Catholic faith, but our conscience says otherwise. They claim that as members of Congress, legislators are charged with being facilitators of the Constitution, which guarantees religious freedom for all Americans. 
In doing so, we guarantee our right to live our own lives as Catholics, but also foster an America with a rich diversity of faiths. Now, on the one hand, a rich diversity of faiths means that the moral foundations of that faith, the moral principles of that faith, must be lived freely. And it is after that statement that they go on to make the reference to the separation of church and state. So they say they want people to be able to live a diversity of faiths, but then they say that there's a separation of church and state, which is popularly interpreted to mean that faith and religion has to stay out of politics. Again, we freely exercise that faith, but we can't bring it into the public square. We can't bring it into the ballot box. We can't bring it into the leadership of our government. Are we practicing a diversity of faiths when we have to leave that faith outside the ballot box or outside the halls of government? So again, here, I believe they're speaking out of both sides of their mouths. If they believed in living a diversity of faiths, then let that diversity enter into the debate and let Catholic politicians lead and debate from the moral foundation of their Catholic faith, not leave it at the door when they walk into the floor of the House of Representatives or the Senate or through the doors of the White House or when they take their seat on the Supreme Court. They're not enforcing a state religion, but their faith forms a moral compass from which they lead. They also go on to say, the sacrament of Holy Communion is central to the life of practicing Catholics and the weaponization of the Eucharist to democratic lawmakers for their support of a woman's safe and legal access to abortion is contradictory. Well, if one is Catholic, isn't it contradictory that they believe in any kind of abortion? But who's weaponizing the Eucharist? Is it the bishops in maintaining Catholic teaching? And expecting Catholics to follow that teaching in all walks of life, including public life? Or is it not the people of public life, the Catholics in public life, who decide, I'm going to be contrary to the church, and I dare you to refuse me communion? Who's weaponizing the Eucharist here? Also, they go on to state other issues, being against the death penalty, against the separation of migrant children from their parents. And they go on to other political issues, such as denying asylum to those seeking safety in the United States, assistance for the hungry, protecting the rights and dignity of immigrants. They name a number of issues, and obviously are not in favor of being denied communion over one single issue. Now, first of all, this is at a time in which people are being canceled for one issue. People will find one issue and then use that as a reason to cancel various people in public life. So on the one hand, they're saying, don't deny us communion over one issue. Yet how many of them support the cancellation over one issue? In addition to that, what is that one issue? That one issue is a basic right that all human beings have. The basic right to life. And in this case, it's the most vulnerable, the most innocent, being denied the basic right to life. People have often told me, well, you know, Father, there are other issues on the shelf. There are other issues on the table. My response to that is, life is the shelf. Life is the table. Without the shelf, there are no other issues on it. 
Without the table, there are no other issues on it. You can't have other issues on the table if there is no table, or other issues on the shelf if there is no shelf. When a person is dead, no other rights apply. And in denying the most vulnerable among us the right to life, all the other rights pretty much fall by the wayside. And we have been repeatedly told that by our religious leaders, our Catholic leaders, for decades, from the Holy Father to Mother Teresa to other faithful religious leaders, bishops, priests, and other religious people, including lay people, for decades. Then they go on to state, We solemnly urge you not to move forward and deny this most holy of all sacraments. Well, first of all, I love their use of the word solemnly. I actually looked it up just to make sure. On the Google Dictionary, it states, Solemn means characterized by deep sincerity. So I looked up sincerity. And sincerity is the quality of being free from pretense, deceit, or hypocrisy. These are politicians. When have we been able to ever, in any time in history, trust the sincerity of a politician? I remember in the movie, The Hunt for Red October, Richard Jordan, the late actor who plays the Secretary of Defense, after a meeting of the National Security Council, he's speaking to Jack Ryan, played by Alec Baldwin, and he says, I'm a politician, which means I'm a cheat and a liar. And when I'm not kissing babies, I'm stealing their lollipops. Now here, politicians are solemnly making this statement. And again, just as politicians to use such words as solemnly, and then they dictate what the religious leaders of the Catholic bishops here in the United States should do. In other words, they are violating the separation of church and state by telling the U.S. bishops how to conduct their business. They solemnly are interfering with the religious life of the Catholic Church in this country. And they are Catholics. They just invoked the separation of church and state, and now they are violating it by interfering with this formal instruction, if you will, of how they think the U.S. Catholic bishops should conduct themselves. And they conclude by saying, we believe the church as a community is called to be in the vanguard of creating a more just America and world. And as such, we have a claim on the church's bearing as it does on ours. Now, I listen to that and I wonder, are they stating that faith is democratic? Eternal truths are democratically determined? That they have a bearing on what the church should say because the church is a community? Are they trying to say that religion is a democracy? That religious principles are determined democratically? I certainly hope that's not what they're saying. But there's a lot to unpack with regard to this particular letter. All I can say is, someone needs to remind them of what the separation of church and state means. If it means how they think it means, that the church has to stay out of public life, all I can say is, it goes both ways. If you want the church to stay out of political life, you stay out of religious issues. If people think that once an issue becomes political, it is no longer religious, then kindly stop making religious issues or issues that touch upon the moral foundations of people of faith. Stop making those issues political. 
In other words, they should have just simply abolished slavery because it was immoral. And a Christian movement was saying it was immoral. But it became political. And they wanted the abolitionists to stay out of the issue because they were Christian. Now they're saying the same thing about abortion. Let's just ban abortion because it offends many people of deep religious faith in this country. But they make it political, so they expect people of religious faith to stay out of it. And in many ways, isn't that just like politicians? Politicians, if they don't think it outright, certainly do act as though they are experts on everything. Have you heard our politicians these days? They're experts on science. They're experts on education. They're experts on nutrition. They want to dictate how we speak, what pronouns we use. They're experts on human biology. They're experts on social justice. They think they're experts on morality if they say that the government has a moral purpose. Well, the church has a moral purpose as well. Now they're saying they're experts in religion simply by virtue of the fact that they're politicians. And how often have we seen people in public life, Catholic or otherwise, dictate religious policy? If the church really cared about the poor, it should do this. If the church really cared about the vulnerable, it should do that. Some even go so far as to say, well, my understanding of God is thus and so. Or they'll say, well, God is a loving God, therefore he must do this. I always love it. I I wonder what book or what manual they're reading out of. This rule book, this fictional rule book on how to be God. It says right here, chapter 5, section 3, paragraph 2, sentence 4. If you're a God of love, you do thus and so on this circumstance. And we see people in public life doing this all the time. Some people concluding that there is no God at all. Why? Oh, because if God were a God of love, there'd be no suffering. Really? Well, tell that to his son. But again, what rule book did they read this out of? If God were a loving God, it says here in chapter 3, paragraph 2, a God of love does not allow suffering. Now, whoever said that? What is this rule book that everyone seems to be consulting, making them experts on how God should be God. And we see them expressing their expertise on how the Catholic faith and Catholic leadership should conduct themselves when members who claim a Catholic faith in their leadership in public life are living something and advocating for something that is directly contrary to some of the most basic aspects of a faith they claim to profess. And in this case, the sanctity of all human life, and in particular, the life of the unborn, who are the most vulnerable and the most innocent among us. So I thought I'd unpack that just a little bit. There's probably a lot more to be said, and other Catholic commentators are saying a great deal about them over the last few days and in the days to come. But these were just my thoughts, and I thought I would couch this analysis more in line with American history, as this is faith, hope, and history, and the idea of separation of church and state. But read the Danbury letter of Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist Church. And you'll get an idea of how our founding fathers understood the separation of church and state. And these members of Congress, who claim to be Catholic, are violating the separation of church and state. But that understanding that they have is, in fact, at its heart, a misunderstanding. 
but just taking their misunderstanding of the separation of church and state. It goes both ways. If you want the church to stay out of politics, politics has to stay out of the matters of the church, even if they are members of that church. As politicians, they should stay out of it, if we are to take their understanding of the separation of church and state. But since theirs is a misunderstanding, but the correct understanding of the separation of church and state is that it is a protection of the church from imposition of the state, not a protection of the state from imposition of the church. Because people of faith are going to be members of government. And those people of faith will use that faith to inform how they govern. And that is a constitutional way that religion can have an influence in our government. The government just cannot, nor can Catholic people or Christian people or people of any faith, use the government to impose a state church or prohibit the practice of religion. But they can certainly take their faith and its moral grounding in the way they lead and what they bring about in their leadership in this country. But we cannot use our status as Catholics as an excuse to contradict the Catholic faith and Catholic teaching simply because we are in politics or we are in a position of leadership. Simply stating I am Catholic does not give us any moral credibility to contradict Catholic teaching or to advocate for things that are contrary to Catholic teaching. And not just Catholic teaching, but human teaching. We're talking about the sanctity of human life. If that is not universal to everybody, Catholics and non-Catholics, then there's no point in having a religious faith in, in any faith. And we may as well say, yes, politics is the superior dictator of moral standards in a society. But no, our founding fathers wanted religion so that we would have a moral grounding and ensure that our nation does not fall into a moral anarchy. And these members of Congress, who claim to be Catholic, are imposing their role as politicians into the life and teaching and leadership of the Catholic Church and its Catholic leaders, and somehow thinking that because they are Catholics, in being politicians, they have some kind of authority over the leadership of the Church in this country. So those are my thoughts for this week. If you get a chance, visit my website at www.billnicholas.com and visit my YouTube page, FR for Father William Nicholas, where I post my homilies and other catechetical teachings of various aspects of church tradition, the sacraments, and church teaching. And I thank you for joining me, and thank you for listening, and with any luck, I will talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.